Now all this year we've been talking about incarnating Christ. We've been talking about living a life in such a way that when people look at you, they see something of Jesus in your life. They see how you behave. They see how you think. They see how you act. They see Christ in you. And in that, you are incarnating Christ to a, to a, a, a people around you. You're showing them what Jesus looks like in flesh. That's a really important thing. It's really important to be able to live in such a way that those around you can see the life of Jesus living out and shining out through your life. In fact, the greatest problem in the church today is people saying that they are Christian but living like anything other than Christian should live. Saying that they are Christian and ending up doing the things that everybody else in the world is doing. And then everybody looks and says, well, what's Christian mean? Well, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So in a, in a climate where this is uh, endemic around the churches, where young people and older people just do as everybody else does in the world, we need to incarnate Christ. We need to look like Jesus. We need to act like Jesus. So we're going to look at our spiritual power. <laughs> and when we talk about spiritual power, I'm not talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, tongues and interpretation. And we're not talking about laying hands on people and have people go wobbly at the knees as God touches them. We're not talking about healings. We're not talking about miracles. We're talking about the way you live, the spiritual way you live, the way you have power in your life to be different. I think in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it goes through and it says it's going to be terrible times in these last days where people will be lovers of themselves. And then it goes down and it articulates all these horrible things that you wouldn't want to see in people at all. And then at the end it says, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And what he's saying there is these people, they think that they are Christian, they live like the world and they go to church and they have a form of godliness, but they denied the power of it. Because the power of a godly life is a power that has lived a changed life. So when you live a godly life, you don't do the things you used to do. You don't speak the way you used to speak. You don't feel the way you used to feel. And you don't walk the way you used to walk. You live a different life. That's the power of godliness. God changes us and the Spirit tells us that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, that we live a, a godly and upright life. So spiritual power in our life is really taking the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God's Holy Spirit within us, and allowing His personality and His character to live out through our lives and to express Himself through our lives so that when we get into a hard place, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be patient. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be long-suffering. The Holy Spirit empowers us to have that sense of tenacity and durability so that we don't do the things that we would normally do before that's the spiritual power the way you live in front of others that's what says more than what you say from your mouth it's how you act and how you behave that says more and so we want to look at the life that reflects the character of Jesus, a life that is full of the Spirit and that expresses the fruit of God's Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us. And we want to keep in step with Him every day because we're told if we keep in step with the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. 
It's walking with the Spirit. It's walking in the Spirit. It's letting the Holy Spirit's character permeate our lives so that we begin to think like the Holy Spirit, feel like the Holy Spirit, and respond like the Holy Spirit wants us to respond. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, don't go to sleep. This is important. Okay, now you got that message. If you see them going to sleep, I want you to practice this. (laughs) All right. I can see you go to sleep from here. You didn't think so, did you? I mean, you don't think I see things. I see everybody's face. I knew a man who was a preacher, and he used to have a glass of water here. Um, And he would look, and he, he was so indignant about people going to sleep on. He was a good preacher. But if he saw you go to sleep, he'd pick up the glass of water and he'd just deliver it to you just to make sure you stayed awake. No one ever went to sleep in his services. <laughs> I, I remember when I was youngster in, uh, and I was pioneering a church in, in Lawson and uh, there was a, I'd heard that story about that man who'd done that and there was a man who used to come all the time and sleep in my second row, you know. <laughs> And I remember one day just sort of talking, he dropped to sleep, you know, while I was sitting there talking. And uh, so I just moved up and then I, I said, stand up in the name of Jesus in, in part of the sermon. He bolted up like that, but then you know, everybody was sitting down because I was only making a point. It's just like he woke up when I shouted. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that today. But I might if I see you go to sleep. I might. So we're going to talk about joy today. We'll try not to be funny, but just be joyous, Okay. Spiritual joy. One of the things I suppose that uh, we can be very joyous about is that we have someone stronger on whom we can rely. There's a crazy mentality uh, that goes around in the world that makes us very unhappy and that's the demand that we should have someone stronger on whom we should rely I mean, if you think in a human sense, I need someone stronger on whom I should rely, we get a really, um, I need someone, I need somebody. And if I don't have somebody, I can't be happy because I need someone to make me feel happy. Well, that's craziness, you know. But in a Christian sense, that requirement of heart to need someone, to have someone who's dependable, someone on whom we can rely in the difficult times, is fulfilled in Jesus. It's fulfilled in the Holy Spirit. And so we can have great joy. I mean, the world won't find that sort of fellowship and won't find that sort of support and and confidence in anything because they don't put Christ where he should be. They try and put a human being in that place. And when you try and put a human being in that place and you, you... you get dependent on them. And then, of course, you know what happens when you become dependent on a human being? They go and die on you or something like that. And it's like, oh, my life is all falling apart now because I, I needed that person to survive. Or you get into a little relationship with that person. You be needy and I'll be the one who helps you and we'll get along really well. Now, that's called codependence. You just keep on being a drug addict and I'll just keep on buying your food for you. You keep on taking your drugs and I'll keep on paying your food. We'll have a good relationship. I'm helping you because I'm doing the good thing and you're doing the bad thing because you need me, you know, and I need you because somehow I feel like the Messiah when I'm helping somebody who's a drug addict. That's not a good thing. That's codependence. But Jesus gives us the one who we can rely on, who is constant, who is always there. When everything else fails, when every circumstance in life fails around us, when everything looks like it's doom and gloom, Jesus is there for you. 
and he will always be there for you. He said he would never leave you, nor would he ever forsake you, where you will always be able to say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. That should be some sense of joy. Now, folks, if you don't feel that sense of joy, let me say to you, maybe you need to develop your dependence on Jesus a little bit further. Spend some time with him and let him know how much you need him. Spend, spend some time on him and recognize that without him you can do nothing. Spend some time thinking about how many places he's pulled you out of and how many places he's led you through. Spend some time and think about how he's been there for you the whole time and sit there and tell him, if I hadn't had you in my life, I don't know where I'd be. Now, if you actually say that to him every single day and you tell him that every day, you'd develop that sense of dependency on him and you'd know what it's like to walk with a friend who would never leave you. Probably you don't do that often enough. And you start depending on yourself. You start looking to yourself to be the one who provides your needs. You're looking to yourself to be the one who keeps yourself emotionally secure. You're looking to yourself to try and soothe your own emotions. You're looking to yourself to try and be the one. You're going to be the Messiah. You're like, I'm a self-made man. I made myself go all the way through it. Aren't I? And where is Jesus in the exercise? This great thing is we have someone stronger on whom we don't have to be strong. We have to have faith in the strong one. He will make us strong. Amen? So there's some sense of joy just in that idea, getting that idea into your mind. That, that takes some meditation. That takes some time to, to think through. And Psalm 5 verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them and may those who love you, your name, boast about you. And so this idea of taking refuge in God, recognizing he's stronger, mightier, he's the one on which you can rely, develops within you a sense of joy in his presence, joy in him. Now, just think, reflect upon it. When was the last time I woke up in the morning and said, Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad I'm a what? You looked at the word of God and you said, Oh, I don't know, but I'm just feeling so attached to, Oh, I want to read it. Oh, I wish I had, didn't I? Oh, I want to read it more. And when the buzzer goes off, it's time to stop. I don't, I don't want to stop. You know, I just want a little bit longer in the word. When was the last time that happened to you? Did it happen this week at all? Did you have that sense of love and devotion and oh, just wanting to be with the refuge of your life? Or was it all too busy? Was the buzzer going off and you just had to throw your clothes on, you had to rush out because you had to get onto the train because you had to go and do and you had to do excited and you just didn't have much time. I'll get to you tomorrow, Jesus. Hang around, I'll be back. Think about it. But let those who take refuge in you rejoice. It says in Psalm 34 verse 5, those who, took, who looked to him, are radiant with joy. There's something about looking at Jesus. You know, when you see Jesus, it's like, oh. 
Oh, we get that when we go to, to see somebody who we kind of like, you know. We go and visit our girlfriend or we go and visit our wife or we go and visit or somewhere. We, we, we bump into somebody and that's the special person of our lives and we look at them and we flat Oh, and the, the, just the appearance of your face makes my heart go bitter, better, bitter, better. I get such joy. And we get that in the human sense. But do you experience that mystically with Jesus in a, in a spiritual sense with Jesus? Have you got that deep-seated joy about looking into his face and looking into I can't see his face. Where did you see his face? Okay, you can't see his literal face. That's okay. Sit down, close your eyes. Don't try and picture a face, but think of what he is like. Think about his immeasurable love. Think about his great forgiveness. Think about the grace which he pours upon you daily. Think about how he speaks to you and he talks to you and he guides you and he leads you. He prompts you and he tells you not to do something and tells you to do something. Think about his presence with you. Look at him and and recognize that as you look at Jesus, he's the author and the finisher of your faith. And you'll find within yourself, if you really look hard, a joy begins to surge within you, bubbling up within you. And no one can take that away. That's something that Jesus gives because his presence is beautiful. Amen? Oh, to love him more. To love him more. You're a good, good God. You're a good, good Father, we say. You know? People who write these songs, you think, oh, mate, where are they living? I'll tell you where they're living. They're living at the footsteps of Jesus, looking up into his face and saying, you're a good, good father. And they get overcome by joy and a song comes and they write it down and everybody starts singing it. Well, don't, don't, don't just sing it with your lips. Go home and sing it with your heart. Find some joy in Jesus. Amen. Look to him. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. Psalm 71, 23 says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you because you have redeemed me. Someone who's aware that they've been bought, they've been bought from a place into another place and they couldn't get themselves out of that place. They were a slave in sin and now have been brought into a new place. That sense of redemption has taken place in their life. Somebody who's aware of that is full of gratitude, is full of joy because that has taken place. If you don't know that that's taken place, you're probably going to have a depletion of joy. So you need to think that one through. God's outrageous and unlimited grace is the premise on which our joy is birthed within our lives. The Holy Spirit comes into us and it says, you know what? You ought to be happy because God has been so good to you. He's been so kind to you. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the story of Balaam this week in Numbers chapter 22, I think, through to 24. We get a story of Balaam. I want to talk to you about that. It's a puzzling story on a number of, re- a number of points and I want to talk it through with you and, and show you how much God loves you through that story of Balaam. So you have all the children of Israel. What have they just done? They've gone to the promised land. We've got 12 spies come out. Ten of them say, oh, it's too bad here. You know, you're going to get eaten up by these. Yeah, there's lots of goodies in there, but the giants there, they'll get you. 
And all the people get turned off. There's two who say, no, we can do this. God is good. He'll give us victory. Caleb and Joshua want to go ahead and grow into the promised land. But, you know, the whole thing falls apart. They all, they decide to go with the, the, the doubters, not with the faithful. And God is not happy with them at all. So he says, everything under the age of 20 will go in. But everything over the age of 20, except for Caleb and Joshua, you're going to wander around in the desert for 40 days until you drop dead. Your carcass is going to die in the desert. You're not going to the promised land. And that's judgment. Now, this is the children of Israel. So they have a sense of God's wrath. They have a sense of missing out. They have a sense of, oh, you know, are we, are we going to go now, says some of them. And they head off presumptuously. And God says, don't go because I'm not with you. If you go, you're going to get done. They got done. They run away. And, oh, dear, it's all terrible. So we're not looking at happy people. But they're all in their ranks and they've headed out away from the, away from the, the, the border now and they're going to start wandering through the wilderness. And as they're wandering through the wilderness, they come through different nations. They go through Edom and they want to get access through there, but he won't let them come through. And so they're looking and they're just getting frustrated. They're still in their ranks where the tents are set out like that. The, the, um, the, the, um, the tabernacle is in the middle and the tents are on each side and it looks kind of foreboding. And Balak is sitting there. He's watching this people. There's about two million of them, something like that. Walking around in the desert in their tents, it's a foreboding sign to see. He says, ah, oh, the fear of these people has, has just consumed me. He says, they're like an ox and they'll lick up everything in front of them and they'll lick like, a lock, like an ox licks up the grass. He says, oh, man, we've got to do something about this, otherwise we're going to be lost. So Balak is really upset by the children of Israel. He says, now what can we do? Talks to his elders, and his elders say, there's a guy called Balaam. The people who Balaam curses are cursed. And the people who Balaam blesses are blessed. Balaam's sort of like a witch doctor, if you like, or a prophet of Baal. He's not on the God side of things, I would have thought, because I thought God's side of things was sitting in the desert near the tabernacle. I thought that, that God was shining down on the, on the meeting place and that Moses was the voice of God. So I figured God is over there. And so they send some money with these princes and they go to Balaam and say, Balaam, 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 please come and curse the children of Israel so that they will die in the desert and we can kill them and they won't hurt us. And Balaam says, what you got? He got the money. Okay, he said, sit here, I'm going to go and talk to God and find out what God says about it. So he goes away and he asks God, what shall we do about these people? And God says, what do you mean God says? God fronts. And talks to Balaam. Well, it, you, well, how is that? You can come and ask me later. We'll talk about that. But I think that's a puzzle. How did you hear God? And God says to Balaam, be careful, buddy. These are my people. He says, they are blessed and not cursed. And you will not utter a word of cursing against them. You will not go with them. So in the morning he wakes up, as Balaam says, you know, God spoke to me last night. And they said, yeah, well, you know, God speaks to you. I didn't know God spoke to Balaam, but obviously he did. He fronted and spoke to Balaam. And Balaam says, we're not going there, he says. 
They must have thought he needed more money. So they run away to Balaam. Balak and said, you know, he's not coming. He said, God won't let him go, you know. All right, send some wealthier riches. Send some wealthier people in there. Let him go. Let him know there's more money behind this. Nothing. And they come to Balaam and Balaam's sitting there again. And he says, you know, all right. He says, let me go and talk to God again. I'll tell you what he says in the morning. Now, we know that Balaam is doing some sorcery stuff. We're told, we're told he does sort of incantations and sorcery stuff. It's like, you know, cutting the chicken's head off. No, not really like that, but it's stuff that he does, which is part of the occult practice. It's sorcery. And uh, there he goes away, and this is what God comes back and says to them. Balaam says, this is what God says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it? Now listen, oh, before he actually comes to this part, he wakes up, God had told him in the middle of the night, you can go with him this time. So he gets up in the morning, settles his donkey, and then God gets angry with him because he starts to head off to go with him. Now come figure, God says, you can go. He says, you can't go, you can go. And then when he gets to go, God gets angry with him and sends his angel with a big sword. This is where you get the story about Alam's bass, or, or sorry, Balaam's as Balaam's donkey. He's standing, the angel is standing in a narrow place, the donkey's coming down, and he sees the angel standing there. Balaam doesn't see the angel standing there, and he heads off into the bush. Balaam gets out and he whacks that donkey, gets back on track again. So further down the road, he finds even more confined space. And the angel stands there and waits for Balaam. The donkey comes down, he sees it, and he has to crush up against the wall to get past. So he crushes up against the wall, and of course he crushes Balaam's foot. Well, Balaam's not very happy about it. Beats the donkey again. Of course, what you do? Beat the donkey again. So this time, he stands in a place where there's no room to get around. And the donkey comes down, looks at the angel and says, Oh, my God, I'm not doing anything. I'm just drops to the land. He just drops onto the ground. In worship. He's not moving. He's prostrate before God. <laughs> Balaam says, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd make you jerky. jerky. Donkey jerky beef. I'd chop your head off. And then the, then the Lord said to the donkey, you can talk to him now, and said, hey, have I ever done this to you from the time that you got me? Have I ever, ever acted like this? When did I ever do this to you before? So you're talking to a donkey now. It didn't seem to phase Balaam. He answered him. He says, oh, no, I don't suppose you have done this before. And then God opens Balaam's eyes so he can see the angel. And we get a typical response when you see something much greater and bigger than you. I fall on my face and I repent. So Balaam repents. Then the, the, God says to him, you know, you can go, but make sure that the words that come out of your mouth are only my words. So he gets there, Balak's there, he brings down his, a, whole lot of cat, a whole lot of bulls and a whole lot of rams, and they come to the place where they're going to offer up sacrifice. They can see the whole children of Israel there. And Balaam comes in and he says, okay, let's do this now. And he offers up seven, seven bulls and seven rams. In fact, they offer three lots of seven which is interesting because three sevens is the number of Jesus. 
Interesting, isn't it? That Jesus would sort of type, in a type, appear outside of the law, away from the law. Here they are in the tent of meeting and what are they aware of in the tent of meeting is their fallenness and their fact that they have sinned and and the children of Israel are aware of their wickedness because they're wandering around in the desert to die because of their wickedness. You, You know, when you live under the law, all you get to know is how bad you are and how wicked you are and how evil you are. And you know that God's judgment is coming down on you because that's what it is with the law. But Balaam's not under that. Balaam's offering 777 twice. And God's speaking to him. Amazing. He's not going through the tabernacle, not going through Moses. It's outside of that. And God speaks to him. And this is what he says after they offer up the first seven. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said and will it not not do? Has he not spoken? Will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a commandment to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. We used to sing a song like that. And then he says these words, and these are the words I want you to listen to, because these are the words that when I read them when I was reading, they produced an incredible amount of joy inside of me. Listen to what Balaam said. He, God, has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with them, and the shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. Well, I thought, that's not my perception. (laughs) My perception is, that they're around, walking around in the desert because of the bad things that they've done and God's got a big stick and he's waiting to get them every time until they're all gone and not, not one of them is going to go into the promised land. You know, some of you live there every day with God like a big stick beating you down because you've done something wrong. You did something a while ago and it sit back in your head and you think it and even though you ask Jesus to forgive you, you just can't get free of it because it's in there, it's reminding over you and it's condemning you all the time because you think somehow you have to do something to pay for your sin. You're living near the tent of meeting. You're living under the law. You're not living where Balaam's living. Balaam's living somewhere else. He's outside of the Lord now. He's not. He's listening to God and God says, This is my perception. The sacrifice of Jesus has produced such a cleansing. I see no iniquity in these people. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, I didn't know that. That touched you deep down inside of it. I see no iniquity. Wait a minute. Come on, wait. Look, stop. Get in touch with what has just been said. How many of you can tell me the last time you did something bad? Put your hand up. Tell me. I don't want to know what it is. Tell me the last, you've you got a clear memory of the last time you did something bad, this last week. Put it up. How many of you now are living with the sense of, a little bit of sense of guilt about that? Put it up. Even if it's thoughts. Oh, yes. You know what it's something? God, who came to Balaam, said, I do not see 
iniquity in you or wickedness in your tent. You know, God is beautiful. I certainly wouldn't have said that about my own life. I probably would have gone through my life this week and shaken my head and said, how can you call yourself a Christian with that stuff going on? I would have just looked at myself. If they knew what was going on in my, oh, my good night. But there is joy in Jesus. There's something just fabulous in Jesus. He looks at us and he does not see the iniquity. You know, the seven bulls and the seven rams didn't do it. They didn't do it once. They didn't do it through two eyes, but they didn't do it three times. But three times was necessary because it's a picture of what Jesus was going to do. And it's not by the sacrifice of bulls and goats that we, we get saved. It's by the sacrifice of Jesus and that he redeemed us. And when God looks at us, He has taken our sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. The scripture says, and he remembers it no more. You might wander around with the consequences of it in your life and in your mind. But when God looks at you, and that's the count, when God looks at you on the day when you face him, he will not remember it. He will not hold it against you. It has been forgiven and it has been cleansed and it has taken away. And that is account for joy. Amen? Well, I would just like to just stop now and think about that a little longer because every time I think about it, my heart goes, Oh, I love you, Jesus. Because the ones who forgive much love much. If you don't have that in you, you don't know how bad you really are and how much Jesus forgave you. Seriously. You know, there's some beautiful, beautiful scriptures. And I'll, I'll just go back and I'll have a look at some of them. In fact, I don't even think I've got them in here because I had them before, but they don't seem to have come off in my notes. Oh, here they are. Let me read some of them to you. My little children, he says in 1 John chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. So write that down, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. God wants us to be sinless. It's true. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's a lawyer in heaven whose name is Jesus. And when you do stuff it up here, he begins to make a case for you so you don't get fried. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. Now, the propitiation is an action meant to regain someone's favor. That's what it is. That's what the word means. An action taken to regain somebody's favor. So if I've offended my wife, and it's been a real deep offense, like maybe I forgot her birthday. Well, maybe I, I, mean, I, I haven't. But if I did, um, I would have to make a propitiation, a sacrifice to appease the wrath of Jenny. And how would I do that? Um, Would probably make a really big present, you know, maybe the day after, you know, and make sure it's everything that she ever wanted and put some flowers in there and some whatever and and sneak it up and surprise her. Ha-ha, I forgot it yesterday, but I didn't forget today. And she would actually forget because, oh, look at that. Isn't that lovely? You have huggy, kiss you 
that this that whatever it was would have been a propitiation it would have made her forget the fact that she was offended now my wife wouldn't get we don't we forget all the time our birthdays but just in case you were sort of antsy about birthdays but that's what a propitiation is it it's an offering or a sacrifice or a gift that makes the person who receives it forget that they've been offended wow wow well, that, wow. Well, that is, that is some sense of joy there. Lily, wouldn't you like that? A sacrifice that could make people who hold something against you forget what they're holding against you and make them think good things about you. Wow. Imagine that. Maggie, if you were to come before God and you were able to have something that would make all the bad stuff disappear like that. Man. Wow. Wow. I've got some bad stuff. I'd like to disappear. Do you have some? Do you have some bad stuff you'd like to disappear? Come to Jesus. He's got that stuff to make him disappear. It's the sacrifice of his life. It's his blood. It washes clean your sin and there is nothing left. So when God comes looking for something and he's got a good look, he comes looking to find something, he finds no iniquity in you. There's nothing there. It's all been washed clean. Next time you're sitting down and the condemnation of the devil comes whispering in your ears, telling you you're a dirty scumbag, look at all the way you think. You want to stand up and say the joy of Jesus is in my heart because his blood cleanses me from all sin i am not the one who's going to be condemned think about that chew on that some i thought i saw that i read that i thought oh jesus how great are you how fantastic is this i'm reading through numbers and you i thought this is going to be boring and it's fantastically good and i want to tell you you know balaam's hearing from jesus Jesus is still talking to people who, who are coming to, to God and thinking they want to hear from God. How many Islamists who get on their knees and bang their head on the floor and show us the way, have a dream in the middle of the night and God comes to them and Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and they get converted to Christianity. You go onto YouTube, you'll find Jesus is still fronting up to people who, who are not in church because he loves them so much. He cares for them so much. He wants them so much. He wants to save them. I love it. Psalm 103 says, He forgives us all our iniquities and heals all of our diseases. It's just beautiful. Isaiah 43, 25 says, If I, even, if I who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, I will remember your sins no more. Wow. I blot them out. Robert was sitting in there house meeting on Tuesday night well, last week or the week before I can't remember and we were talking about you know something and you said I hope you don't mind you said I spent about 60 years or previous years doing a lot of bad stuff and, he, and he's now living his life so that he could and he says and that's all going to be burnt up he says but I want to live my life now and put something in the bank that that lasts for eternity so he's going to live his life to do that and I thought about it we all got we all got history you know every one of us got history every one of us got stuff that we are not proud about 
And the joy of our salvation, the joy of our salvation, the joy... Turn to the neighbor and say, do you have joy about your salvation? Now look at their face. Do they really? Say, you're not convincing me. If they're not convincing you, just say, no, I'm not convinced. (laughs) Well, I want to say something. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. Once you get that, <laughs> if you were on death row in, ba- in ba- Bali, if you were on death row and they were going to line you out and shoot you through the heart with a machine gun, if you were standing there and then you got a free, free trip back to Australia, I tell you what, you'd be jumping, you'd be dancing, you'd be going, whoo-hoo, you wouldn't be able to wipe the smile off your face. And that's just a temporal death for a moment. Listen, this is an eternal death that he saved you from, but you don't even realize that. You don't even realize how much danger you're in. You don't understand how good this is. You ought to dance all the way home, dance all the way through the week, and dance around everywhere and say, how crazy are you? Jesus saved me from eternal hell. Wow, he doesn't remember it anymore. Hallelujah. That ought to make you excited. Man, if you don't get excited about it, I don't know what you'd do. Hey, if I can't make you excited about that, you're going to get more excited about a football, I tell you. You get so mad about a football. Jump up and down about a football. Yeah, go to the Broncos. I want to tell you something. Go Jesus. Amen. It's enough. Oh, Jesus. Where, we are. Where does the joy go during the week? What happens that we forget it? What happens that we forget that we have been cleansed from our past sins? What happens in our head that we become so clouded that we lose the joy of our salvation? What happens? What rubbish is going on in your head? You want to st- take that down. Get back, to the, get back to the root of this thing. Jesus. Jesus. We used to sing that song, Alan, didn't we? Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know. And he's just the same as his holy name. And that's the reason why I love him so. Because Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Oh, we get back to love Jesus again. The joy of our our salvation. Amen? You know, we, we lose joy when we are disobedient. Usually, disobedience brings sadness into our heart. And the reason why it brings sadness into our heart is because we recognize or feel the grieving of the Holy Spirit who is within us. When you do something that you know you ought not do and you you disappoint Jesus, He grieves within you and so you get disappointed inside. You get that sad feeling inside. So you lose that sense of joy. Hebrews 1 Verse 9 says about Jesus says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. Jesus had this immense joy no matter what he was going through, no matter what he was facing, he had this incredible joy because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. You will lose that anointing of joy if you begin to dabble in unrighteousness. There's this great joy in confession and there's great joy in the recognition that your life has been cleansed from sin. Yes, but there's great joy in obedience, in continuing to walk in obedience, 
If you don't walk in obedience, if you don't follow the lead of the Spirit, that's probably why you lose the sense of joy quickly. Yeah, Jesus, I'm with you. I feel great. I'm happy now. It's Monday. I've got that joy inside. I'm clean. And the first challenge comes to you and he says, put away this thing. Start thinking a different thing. And you say, oh, it's a bit hard, Jesus. Well, you're not really in love with him, are you? In love with the thing, aren't you? So your joy begins to dry up. Because the the anointing of joy is when you love righteousness and hate lawlessness. So to maintain the joy, keep loving doing the right thing. Psalm 51 verse 12 tells us about this. It says, David is now, he's committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. It's not bad enough that he made this woman pregnant while her husband was at war. He arranges for the husband to get murdered at war so he can marry this woman, so he can cover his sin. This is pretty bad. And he thinks he's got away with it until Nathan fronts up and tells him a little story and reveals the whole thing. This is Psalm 51. It's the song that he sings after it's been exposed and he has to face his sin. This is what he says. Restore the joy of your salvation and give me a willing heart. You lose the joy of your salvation when you sin. Repentance will bring it back. Ask for a willing heart to keep on walking in it. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm willing to have my sins forgiven, but am I willing to let you lead me in a different path? I'm willing to be cleaned. You can wash me, Jesus, wash me. But am I willing to let you guide me on a different road? Will I let you steer me away from the things that have caused me pain and caused you pain? In John chapter 15, verse 9, it's all a matter of love. And and Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have loved, kept the Father's commandment and remain in his love. And he says, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He wants you to have a complete joy, but the complete joy is connected to your love. You know, when I was first engaged to my wife, I didn't love her. I didn't. And she didn't love me. Well, I asked her to marry me on the first date, so that was why we didn't love each other. <laughs> you remember that, Mum? I don't know. Yeah, she, Mum said to me, don't you hurt that girl? No, I'm going to marry her. Don't be silly, Mark. <laughs> so you know, I took her out and asked her to marry me. It was the first date. So I could have walked away then and I could have dropped dead or she could have dropped dead and we wouldn't have grieved anything because we weren't in love. But what happened after you start courting is something different. You get to know each other. You get to learn about each other. You get to spend time with each other. And you get to know what's going on. And the other person says, and the more you know, the more you love. The more acquainted you become, the more attached you become, the more you want to stay there, the longer the nights become. You know, Dad would say, Dad Glean would say, well, I'll go to bed 
so that you can go home, sir. And I'd sort of say, well, I'll just wait here a little longer until you can't stay up any longer. Because I want to linger and kiss the girl I love. So we got, oh, here you are. I thought you were in the ladies' room looking after the kids. Oh, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) But you see, if you walk in a relationship with God like you walk in a relationship with somebody you love, The joy is there, and it's full. It's always full. If you begin to think that your relationship with Jesus is a bit of a bind, you'd rather be doing things with the mates from school or from university, rather be playing whatever the game is that you're playing that tantalizes your mind, rather be listening to the worldly music than godly music. If you're thinking that sort of things, well, don't expect your joy to be full. It's not going to be complete. It is complete when you are walking in love with Jesus. That's when it's full. How many people want to go around feeling unhappy in life? Put your hand up if grief and sadness is what you want. Have we got a few pessimists here? How many people want to be happy? Well, that tends to be uh, the drive in our societies for happiness. I think there was an article that came through last week in the newspaper. talked about three things that are essential for happiness. You know? And one of them is good relationships give you happiness. There's nothing like a relationship with Jesus to make you eternally happy. Joy comes when you see the purpose of suffering beyond your own pain. Sometimes doing the right thing is going to cost you something. So when it's easy to do the right thing, it's easy to be happy. When it's hard to do the right thing, you're going to suffer. And it's not going to be nice. So when you're doing the right thing and it's suffering, you don't feel the joy. You don't feel the joy, you feel the pain. But the joy is still there if you look further. If you look further than your pain. So you're going to have to get fried to go through this one. It's going to cost you something, says Jesus. It's going to cost you some suffering. You might die at this. But look a little bit further. After you died, there's going to be these big white gates and they're going to swing open wide and millions upon millions are going to see and Jesus is going to stand to his feet and he's going to say, welcome home. Look a little bit further than the pain that you're going through. To walk in love sometimes means that you're not going to have the temporal thing of happiness right there. But don't get caught by that. Look a little bit further than the pain and the suffering. Look your eyes a little bit further and see what's coming. And put your heart and your joy on the thing that you're looking for in the future. That will carry you through. Like it carried Jesus through. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 it says, And may the hope... God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope, somebody is coming, it's coming. You might sow in tears, but you will reap in joy. That's what it says, you might sow in tears, you might take precious seed, go out and it's costing you something. But in the end, you're going to come back with a harvest, you're going to reap in joy. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, keep 
our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was laid before him endured the cross and despised the shame as he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. He said, okay, the cross is coming. I don't want to do this, he said to the Father. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to this thing. But the scripture says he saw you and me. He saw you and me coming to glory. He saw you and me coming into his grace, coming before the throne of God. And he said, okay, let's do this thing. There's no other way. I want to bring them home. He, he brought us home, Misha. It was a joy inside of him to do that. He saw your face and he saw my face when they started to rip the flesh from his back. When he started to nail him to the cross and they yanked him up there and he was pouring out his lifeblood. He saw you, Shaley. He did it for you. And he did it for me. That we could come to him. And that was a great joy for him. Even though he suffered. Listen, folks. You might have to go through equal suffering. But that doesn't mean that it has to stop you in this thing. Set your eyes on him. And the joy that's going to come. And though pain may be here in the evening, joy will come in the morning. Just keep hanging on there. Keep walking with Jesus. And let the joy of your salvation fill you to overflowing in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. God bless you. Let's pray. And Father, we ask you to help us to grasp the enormity of your outrageous grace. Jesus, help us to understand how terribly sick we were, how terribly dead we were in our sins before you came along. Help us to understand what you lift up, lifted us from and the punishment that was waiting for us if we hadn't been lifted out of it, Father so that we can truly understand the redemption that you brought to us and we can experience the joy of salvation. Help us, Jesus, this week not to be trivial about the things of God, but to earnestly search after and seek after your kingdom with the knowledge, Father, that everything will be added to us if we keep you in the center of all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you.